Hey everybody and Happy New Year. Welcome back to another episode of the Maine Fly Fishing Podcast. This is episode number 13 and I had the pleasure of sitting down to talk with author Bob Romano. Bob is the author of a number of novels set in the Ranger Lakes region. His fictional fly fishing related stories are extremely entertaining and his knowledge of the Rangeley area is quite impressive. His latest book, River Flowers, just came out on December 15th and it's a collection of short stories that Bob has written. Go pick up a copy at local shops in Rangeley, through Amazon, or on his website, ForgottenTrout.com. I thoroughly enjoyed talking with Bob and getting to know more about him. I really think you'll like this episode. All right, Bob. Why don't you why don't you tell us about yourself, and then we'll uh, we can get into your connection with Rangeley and fly fishing in Maine. But go ahead and tell us about yourself and sure. growing so, up and where you're at. Yeah. So um, you know, my name is Bob Romano, and my wife Trisha and I uh, we've owned a camp uh, up on Aziskahas Lake, which is in the Rangeley Lakes region, uh, for for nearly forty years now. Um, and, you know, when we first came to the region, uh, we were really just kids. In fact, we weren't married. Uh, uh, our first trip there, we stayed at Bozebuck Mountain Camps. And within two years, uh, we, we bought this camp. Um, and, you know, over the years, I've had people say to me, you know, well, you know, what's so special about the Rangeley Lakes region? And, you know, why, why would you spend all those years there? There are so many other places that you could fish or you could own a, own a cabin. Um, and I've really broken it down to, to three things. Um, I guess first and foremost are the other fish. You know, we, the, 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 these are native brook trout. They're some of the largest brook trout you'll find in the uh, in the United States. Probably the largest you'll find south of Labrador. Um, but also, you know, the country uh, um, it really hasn't changed all that much since the 1800s. Um, you know, there was a there was a, a, a fellow by the name of Johnny Danforth, Johnny Danforth and, and Fred Barker. Uh, these were these were kids. They were 18, 19 years old back in the 1800s. And they decided they were going to spend the winter above Parmachini Lake and they were going to trap and hunt. And they were some of the first white folks to, to be up in this region. Um, well, it hasn't changed a whole heck of a lot since then. Uh, yeah, we've got some logging roads that go through there. But that, that's really about it. So it's really rugged country, uh, uh, and, and that would be the second element. And then the third is th- this rich sporting tradition uh, that you'll find throughout the Rangeley Lakes region. Um, you know, you have people like Carrie Stevens, who tied the Grey Ghost Streamer, um, Fly Rod Crosby, uh, you know, a woman who became the first uh, licensed Maine guide, uh, Shang Wheeler, who came up with the story of Pincushion Pete, um, Herbert Welsh, Herb Welsh, who, who tied the Black Ghost Streamer. So, you know, I've got all this sporting history in this relatively um, small area. Uh, you've got beautiful country and wild fish, and I, I just could, can't think of any, any place better to be. And so we've spent nearly 40 years now uh, up there, uh, one fishing season after another. I've always, I've always wondered what it would look like there before, you know, dams and stuff like 
the dam at the bottom of Cisco. So I wonder what the region, I wonder the region looked like and how much different it would be before that. It's kind of cool to think about it, but. Yeah. Um, again, this fellow, Johnny Danford, you know, he, he actually wrote a book, uh, uh, telling of his adventures during that winter. And they, they actually took uh, a canoe, uh, up the Megalloway. This was, this was before the dam was put, the dam was put in about, 1912, 1913, and so they were able to go all the way up the Megalloway. There was no Camp 10 bridge. Uh, They they went all the way up right through Parmachini Lake and then above Parmachini Lake. So you can actually read about it. That's uh, cool. You know, in in his uh, in his book. Um, uh, Again, you know, and thinking about the sporting history there, I I get a kick out of that dam out of Ziskahas Lake. the way I hear it, um, you know, they, they, they had a wooden dam there, and um, there was a, a kink, I guess, uh, in, in the river uh, below, the McGalloway, below that wooden dam where they constantly had a dynamite, the lumber coming down, the trees coming down. So they decided they needed to have a bigger dam and hold back more water, and um, they, they were, they were going to do a concrete dam. So... Um, Apparently, they didn't know really quite how to do it, and, you know, my name ends in a vowel, right, Romano, mm-hmm. so I'm proud of the fact that they, they actually brought Italian masons over from <laughs> Italy uh, to build this dam. And, and they did the it in one year, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, it's incredible. And at the time, it was the biggest dam uh, in the United States. Uh, and then uh, they tell me that during World War II, uh, and at this part I don't understand, but they, they, there was this constant fear uh, that the Germans were going to uh, commit sabotage and blow the dam up. I, I don't know who would get hurt if that dam blew in 1945. <laughs> right. There wasn't anything below it, but that's the story that I hear. Do you, do you know the history on why they built the dam? Yeah, I think it was to raise the level even higher than they were able to with the with the, with the wooden dam that was there. Yeah, because they had to get that water well above a certain level because they they were constantly jamming up the um, uh, the trees, you know, that they had felled. Yeah, um, and and you know how that worked. I mean, they would they would uh, bring the trees down at, out of the surrounding forest, and then they would have these steamboats that they would. Uh, uh, put chains around it, uh, around these big masses of, of cut trees, and the steamboats would bring them down the lake, uh, and then they would go down the river again, and then they would go to the next lake, and then they would go down the river again, and everything, the Rapid River, uh, the McGalloway River, uh, uh, Moose Look, Rangeley, I mean, it all filtered down yeah. uh, into the Adriscoggin, where all those mills were on, on the New Hampshire side. It's pretty crazy. It's crazy that we're on the backside of that now, too, though, where we don't really, we don't really need the dams, but we do need the dams. Like, we need the Siskos Dam for fishing below it, you know. I don't know what it would be like without it, and it's... Yeah, I mean, I mean that, that tailwater fishery, uh, you know, it works all year round, and you wouldn't have it without that dam. Yeah, for sure. And what's funny is, I mean, you've seen it, because I'm sure, obviously, you've been up there quite a bit, but the lake is so low, it's almost like you can see the channel to the lake and what it maybe looked like before you actually had you know, the, the dam there, because it's almost like a river in some parts right now. Uh, especially this year. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, because of the, in that area, I mean, there was a drought. Uh, southern Maine was fine. They, they were getting rain, but we just weren't getting it in that, that little, uh, like, micro-climate. Uh, um, and so, yeah, I've never seen the lake as well as it, as it was this year. Now, you your camp must be on the west side of the lake, correct? Or, sorry, the east side. 
it is on the east side, yeah. and it is. Um, uh, my wife gets upset when I when I when I give direction, you know, not directions, but when I give you an idea. But it, it's only a mile down from Camp Ten Bridge. Sure. You know, sure. There's, three, there's three or four camps there, and, and we're we're one of those uh, one of the camps, just literally a mile from Camp Ten Bridge. Very cool. And on the uh, west side, there's really no there's no houses over there, right? I think it's just the camps. I, I, I think there's one camp down, uh, actually down by the concrete dam, not that far up uh, from from there. But I think that is the only one. And then of course you have Bozbuck, uh, the sporting lodge, Bozbuck Mountain cl- uh, Camps, which is. Almost directly opposite from my camp. Oh, that's cool. There's an island in between us. If that island wasn't there, I, I'd be looking across at, at the dock at, at Bozbuck. Yeah, and uh, it's it's a cool lake. It's so long. I mean, it, it takes forever just to drive up to the top of it. And I've actually never been on a boat on the lake. I'm sure you have many times, though. Yeah, it's about it's about 13 miles long, and it takes about 45 minutes on a logging road to get up to the to the top of the lake. Very cool. And do you, uh, I'm sure, are you there quite a bit in the spring, like during the, the fishing season? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the, you know, the really hot time to be up there are, are those last two weeks in May. Um, I mean, the ice can be on the lake sometimes right through to the second week of May. Uh, now, that's changing a little bit because of the uh, extreme weather events and the global uh, warming and all that. Uh, but historically, uh, we could have ice up until that second week. Come the third week of May, I mean, that's when the big fish are leaving the lake and they're following the smelts, you know, up the river. Sure. So you really want to be there those two weeks. And then as June, as June approaches, uh, you know, I would say those first two weeks, everything is subsurface. Um, you know, you're either fishing. Uh, I, I fish a lot with wet flies. Yep. Uh, the younger guys like you, of course, are nymphing. Yep. <laughs> uh, and, and then, um, you know, everybody's using streamers, um, egg patterns, too. Yep. Um, There's a lot going on that those last couple yeah. months, weeks in May there, and then they start looking up come June a little bit. So That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I tell this story, which, which, which is a true story. Um, so, we, you know, we were fishing... Um, this particular year, uh, everything is subsurface, and we, we're nailing them uh, for about a week. And suddenly, you know, I'm on the I'm on that uh, on the river, uh, and uh, I'm not we're just not catching anything. And there's a couple of guys above me. There's a guy maybe across the river, another guy below me. Everybody's fishing subsurface. Nobody's catching anything. And out of the corner of my eye, I see I see a, a, a flash. Uh, you know, uh, just like a splash at the, the top of the surface. Then I see another splash. I said, you know, son of a gun, I, I think there's something's rising. I, I don't know why, but so I put an Adams on and I actually saw a fish come up and look at it, but it, it didn't take. Um, and I went from a 14 to a 16 to an 18. Uh, fish are coming up, but they're not taking it. And, you know, I, I look at the bottom of my pack and I find a, a little 20 zebra emerger. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm like, you got to be kidding and I put this thing on, and I start taking fish. I mean, they're, they're just, it, it was like a, like, like a, must have been a midge uh, uh, hatch that was coming off. So after about 20 minutes, the guy above me comes down, and he says, you know, what the, what the heck are you using, you know? Are we catching fish? And I just smiled at him. I said, oh, I have a number 10 black ghost on. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> and that was that. He walked back up. So I know it was kind of nasty, but I figured you got to work for your fish. Hey, I agree with you. I'm, I'm, uh, my thing with talking to people, too, is like I never believe people because they can either be lying or 
maybe they're not lying and that but at the same time like you know you ever walk down the river you run into somebody and somebody goes you know or you go hey they go how's the fishing and i never like to take anybody's word for it because i don't know what type of fisherman you are you know i don't know what you're doing you might might be your first day there i mean you know what i mean so i don't like to i don't like to take people's word for it but i will i will agree with you on the midges and it's uh it's crazy the first time you catch a really big fish on a really tiny fly like that. Like it's just, yeah. it's it's like I remember the first time for me I caught a twenty inch salmon on a twenty uh, size twenty fly. Yeah. It was a caddis larva, and I was just like, it was crazy to me. It was just a very, uh, I'm like, how can this little thing stay in there and stay on for so long? Yeah, but yeah. It's real. It's real. <laughs> it's very real. So. Um, all right, well, listen, why don't we get in a little bit about what you do? Like you're, I know you're an attorney. Um, I also wanted to mention my, my father's also an attorney. Um, and I, and I think you guys might have something in common. Do you not have a cell phone? That's correct. So, so, uh, you know, I, I wrote, I know you're going to get into the books, but, uh, so I wrote this series of novels. Actually, it's a trilogy that takes place in, 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 in the Rangeley area. And the lead character's name is Salvatore D'Amico. So, um, Salvatore is my favorite Italian name. If I, if I could, you know, if I had a son, I would name him Sal and D'Amico is my mother's maiden name. And he, and, and my, my, uh, grandfather on my mother's side was, was a, was a character and, and I loved them dearly. So that's how I came up with the name. And I figured there aren't a whole heck of a lot of Italians up, up in the region. So it would be fun to have a character of Italian American descent. And, um, um, uh, I actually forgot where I was going with this, but um, um, so so he's the main character. Uh, yeah, in, in, we were talking about you not having a, not having a cell phone. Uh, that's right. So so um, I made sure that this particular character, who in the books is is, is really grumpy uh, and um, uh, really can't abide other people. He, he's a guide, yet he can't abide people, you know, fishing in in his favorite spots, and he doesn't have a cell phone. Uh, so he, he's a real Luddite, uh, and, and, and doesn't believe in, in, in any of that. He just wants to live back in the 19, 1950s, 1960s or whatever. And that, that's, uh, again, I don't own, own a cell phone. In fact, the, the, the iPhone that I'm on right now uh, is my wife's yeah. and, and I'm probably not going to know how to turn the damn thing off if, after we're done. She, that, had to, she had to set it up for me. That sounds like my dad. My dad has never had a cell phone and said he never will. And he's, been an attorney for over 40 years and i just good for him yep my clients can't (laughs) believe it Um, so yeah so my my practice is actually uh i represent three at-risk populations i represent the elderly uh, who i'm fast becoming myself um uh the the developmentally disabled uh and people who suffer from mental illness gotcha so those are the three populations and their caregivers so we, we we try to do planning for those folks to protect their assets and to make sure that they're well taken care of. That's great. Uh, yeah. Do you have your own? Do you have your own practice, or do you work with a? Do you work with like a group of other lawyers? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I started out, I guess, as most attorneys, you know, working working for someone else. But yeah, for the last 25, 30 years, I've had my own practice. Yeah. And, and, and I'm blessed that I've got a staff that I can trust. Uh, I've got a younger attorney. She's in her forties, and she's great. And so it allows me uh, to spend uh, an awful lot of time on the water uh, rather than at, at my office. That's great. That's where you. That's where you want to be at life at this point in life too, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so 
Um, you're asking me, you know, how much time I spend at camp. So we're usually up there those those last two weeks of May uh, into into June. Uh, as the black fly, flies start to get really bad, we'll leave and come back home. Uh, we might go up again uh, for the first week in July. Um, I, you know, I like to fish the caddis hatch at that time. Sure. Uh, and then we'll spend all of August up there. We'll spend the whole month uh, of August. Um, most of the fishing, uh, most of the anglers are gone yep. at that point. And, you know, we pretty much have the place to ourselves. And, um, yes, a lot of the big fish are back in the lake. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, if you, if you know, you know where you where to go, uh, there's still fish to be had. Uh, and I really enjoy my time in August. And then of course, in September, late in the month, uh, those big fish are back in the river cause they're, ha they're spawning themselves. Yep. Um, and so we like to get up there that last week of September and, and there's even fishing now, you know, through October 15th. Uh, at upper at um, yeah at upper dam and a couple of the a couple of the other uh, rivers but but I usually close up shop uh, end of September and it's, okay so you're not a you're not a hunter also then no no I'm not um, a lot of my friends are uh, sure but um, um, pretty much at end of September we'll, we'll we'll close down can you get up there in the winter months or is it is the road kind of uh, uh, yeah I mean, you need a you need you need a snow machine because cool. you know again I'm 45 minutes down that logging road yep. uh, to get to get to the camp and so uh, you couldn't do it without a snowmobile. Cool, that's uh, that's that just sounds great to me. And I I was I was going to ask you if you go up in the winter because I just have this like I don't, I I guess this romantic notion of like being at camp in the winter with the wood stove going and you're over there writing your books or time flies or whatever. It's just, yeah. it's a cool um, thought. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know where we would get our water at that point. <laughs> bringing the buckets up, you know, breaking the ice and bringing it up from the lake. Sure. A lot, of, a lot of people ask me, you know, is that is that when I when I do my writing? You know, when I'm up at camp, and believe it or not, I do not. I, I don't write at all when I'm up there. Yeah. Um, I I, I want to just experience it, and I kind of take it all in, um, and then and then when I when I get back home, um, uh, you know, I'm at the office working. Uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, uh, but Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday um, is when I'll write, and, and I'll wake up each morning, I'll write till maybe 11 or 12, um, and then, uh, you know, spend the rest of the afternoon doing whatever, uh, but that that's when I do my writing. Sure, yeah, and let's, let's, uh, let's transition, we'll talk about your books a little bit, so, um, one, two, three, four, have you... Did I do my homework correctly? You've written six books, or are there more than that? That sounds about right. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, Shadows in the Stream um, was... I, so, so I wrote this first book, uh, which really was not set in Maine. Uh, and, um, uh, but Shadows in the Stream was the, was the first book that was set uh, in the Ranger Lakes region. And that's a book of essays. And that, that little book has gone through four printings. Wow. And, and it's had a, it had a 10th anniversary edition where we added a couple of uh, uh, etchings to it, uh, put a new forward in it. But um, um, every chapter is, a, is an essay or a story about a different lake, stream, or pond. And um, the story I tell, which again is true, is um, there's really this great spot i'm not gonna i'm not gonna name it it's only about 10 or 15 minutes from my cabin 
So uh, I go up there uh, one afternoon and I drive by and, and there's an SUV there, um, Massachusetts plates. And uh, you, you have to hike into this place. And mm-hmm. I'm thinking, you know, I wasn't familiar. I didn't know whose car it was. And I said, boy, I wonder how he ever found out about this place. So I go back to my cabin. I didn't want to bother the guy. I eat my lunch. And then I go back a couple hours later and he's pulling in and I'm pulling out. Uh, and so I rolled down my window and I said, Bub, you know, how did you do? Yeah, I did okay. I said, I got to ask you, how did you ever find this place? And what does he do? He pulls up shadows in the stream. <laughs> some, some guy wrote this book, he said, and I'm going chapter by chapter following all the places that he wrote about. Oh, my so gosh. When I told my wife that story, she says, well, you got two choices here. Either start stop grumbling about people fishing in your spots or stop writing books, but you can't you can't have it both ways. So at that point, did you start masking the name of your places? Um, I actually I have to tell you the last two the last two books I've written uh, actually the last book I've written I did uh, I decided not to name the, the rivers and, and, and whatnot. Uh, I, you know, you want to keep I want to keep the pressure off as, as best as I can. Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I think I think that's important, but also at the same time, like. It's actually been so. You sent me over your your newest book, River Flowers, which we'll get to. But it's been kind of cool reading it and then trying to kind of guess where where you're fishing. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't know if I'm guessing the right places, but I feel like I I have a hunch that that I know. And it's been yeah, cool cause, just because they are they are real places. I sure. can change the names, and change the names of the towns and, and whatnot. It's really cool. Yeah, but shadows. You know, one I probably didn't know any better, uh, but but two. Um, I was also explaining the history of the region uh, as well as talking about these different places to fish. And so it was important for me, you know, to name the different places. It, it really wouldn't have made any sense to do, to do it otherwise. Sure. Uh, that, that book is actually out of print now. Uh, it's really difficult to, to, to get. I probably get at least one email a week, you know, where somebody's asking me, hey, how, how, do, I, how do I go about it? Uh, you know, they charge a lot on eBay to, to buy it, you know, secondhand. Every now and then, I'll come into a copy, uh, and if I get it, I'll, I'll, sh- I'll shoot an email blast, or I'll put something on my Facebook page and say, hey, if anybody's interested, shoot me an email. Um, but, but, it, but it is out of print. What does it take for a book to go to print, Bob? I'm sorry? What does it take for a book to go out of print? Um, well, pretty much, you, you run out the, you run out the uh, 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 however many books that were, were you know, printed in that so, you know, guys like me, you know, we're working with small publishers, uh, and typically, you know, we'll do a run of maybe 1,500 books, so, so you'll get a, a, the first printing would be 1,500. When those books go out of print, uh, you've got to do a whole new run, and a lot of the, these smaller publishers, they don't want to do that because they're afraid they're going to get stuck with books. Uh, so, you know, with Shadows, as I said, we did four printings, so four printings, you know, times 1,500 each. Gotcha. Um, and, and, and then that was it. Um, the, after that, I did this trilogy, which were these novels that were set in Rangeley that I was telling you about. Uh, and that was really a lot of fun. Uh, you know, I, I think of, um, um, what was the, 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 there was a TV show that, that was, uh, in, uh, took place in Alaska. Um, I can't think of the name of it now, but what was it, Trish? Oh yeah, it was called Northern Exposures. Yep. 
Yep. So you think of think of Rangeley as being northern exposure. Sure. Uh, so you basically, uh, you had this cast of, of kind of loony characters that are set in the town of Rangeley in Oquasic, and uh, the lead character was this Salvatore D'Amico, who who was a fly fishing guide, and so I was able to get a lot of the fishing in there, and at the same time, kind of told tell a tell a story, and then I just continued it with the next next two books. Uh, and, and, and they're out of print as well. Same thing. They, they went through a couple of uh, uh, runs, and then um, they're, they're so basically sold out. What are those three books, Bob? Uh, that, that would be, the first book was North of Easy. Yep. Uh, and, the, and the next one was West of Rangeley. And yep. then the third was uh, Brook Trout Blues. Okay. All right. I got all those on my list there. And then, and then you got the River King and River Flowers. Yeah, those, the last two books uh, that are in print, uh, and they're with a new publisher, actually, uh, was the River King and River Flowers. Okay. Um, the River King was really a lot of fun to write because that trilogy I wrote, uh, most of the characters were, were middle-aged or, or older. Uh, there, were, there were some young folks in there, but it was basically people my age. Um, I, I wanted to write a book uh, from the perspective of young people, 20-somethings, that were growing up in Rangeland. You know, when, when you look at it from from my perspective, quite frankly, as somebody who doesn't live there, yeah, uh, it's this idyllic place where you know it's it's a it's a sports playground, right? Everything is wonderful. Uh, it's not necessarily everything being wonderful for people that live there. It, it's tough living there. Um, th- th- it's tough to make a living. Um, a lot of what the folks do is to cater to wealthy people that are coming in there for a couple of weeks. Uh, to fish or to hunt or to ski. Um, uh, and so I, w- I wondered, you know, what would it be like for somebody who's 20, 20, 23 years old, living in the area, seeing all these wealthy people coming into their lakes and their rivers and their streams, and, you know, they're, they're basically barely making making a living. So that, that was the River King. It was the story of, of four young people um, Harry Duncan, who wanted, wants to be a fly fishing guide. Uh, his best friend is Donnie Gilroy, who's, who's a low-level drug dealer, but uh, <laughs> can, can outfish anybody around. Um, um, their, their, their friend, um, uh, who is developmentally disabled, um, and then the, the fourth character was, was a, a woman, uh, who was uh, named Thelma Louise. Her mother named her after watching the movie Thelma Louise. Nice. So it's these four kids that, that basically uh, have a rough time of it, and they're, they're trying to you know take care of each other. Um, and it's set against this backdrop of all these beautiful lakes, rivers, and streams. Um, and um, they're tough kids. These are blue-collar kids. Uh you may not love them when you start the book, but hopefully by the end of the book, uh, you see their perspective and you're rooting for them to, to be able to make it. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting place. I mean, I've, I've like we talked about before, you know, I've just started building a, a camp up there and I'm getting to know some people locally. And I mean, the town's got about 1,400 year-round residents and, yep. you know, the the school um, has like 12 to 15 kids per grade in it. So it's a... Yes. It's yeah. a very small yeah. town, and you know a lot of, like you said, you know a lot of jobs up there are people working in the logging industry, or they're working in, to- you know, obviously tourism. There's quite a bit of that up there. Um, maybe you're an electrician or a plumber or something, but there's not, there's not a ton of these. You know, there's definitely not a lot of white collar jobs up there. So, yeah, 
Yeah, and that's that's the story really that the book that the book is telling. Very cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. Hey, so I didn't. I meant to ask you. I had, this is one of my first questions, and I just forgot. How so? How did you get into writing? So, you know, I wanted to be a writer in college, and to be honest, uh, I had no skills, and I had no nothing to write about. I had no life experience, um, and. Um, that's why I became an attorney. At least I could still work with words, uh, and it was something I was able to do. Sure. So uh, here, I, you know, there I was working as an attorney, and um, my daughter Emily, um, uh, we, my wife and I quickly saw that she really had a facility for art, and and, and um, um, art runs in my wife's family. All, all the women on my wife's side have been artists, either self-taught. My wife went to school for um, scientific illustration, um, and um, um, so we saw that my daughter had had you know was was looking to be an artist, and she had this ability to write as well. She would literally come up with it with 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 a, with a book in her head, and then she might write like the tenth chapter of the book. Wow! And then we we'd read this and say, well, but, but you know you're. You're kind of in the middle of something here. Where's the beginning? Where's the end? Oh well, I thought about that, but she was just I'm too. I don't want to. I can't be bothered. You know, writing the whole book. I could if I want. Yeah. And this is the, this is at like eight nine years old. So I guess it, when she was around fourteen or fifteen, um, a buddy of mine who's a lawyer, uh, he, he he wrote a book. He got it published, and I said, you know what? I, I think I can write a book, and I've got something to write about now. I've got this life experience where. Uh, you know, I've got this camp up in Rangeley. There's this wonderful sporting tradition. Uh, there are all these lakes, rivers, and streams, and uh, as could be a wonderful backdrop to a story. And uh, my daughter can watch the, the, watch this develop from you know um, um, a manuscript, uh, trying to get it published, trying to find a publisher. Uh, what happens when you find that publisher? Uh, and I remember it, my daughter saying to me when I had my first book signing, it was a little little bookstore. I was lucky if four people showed up. Sure. And, and, and she looked at me and said, Dad, when I write my first book, it's going to be at Barnes & Noble, and they're going to be lined up around the block. <laughs> and I said, Emily, you know, from your lips to God's ears, if, if that can happen. So... Uh, she ends up going to school. Uh, she goes to Maryland Institute College of Art. She becomes a freelance artist. And uh, she actually did the cover of The River King for me. Very cool. Uh, and in this latest book, um, The River Flowers, she's done 10 watercolors to illustrate uh, the stories that are in the book, as well as doing, doing the cover. So that was really fun to be able to work with her. For uh, sure. After going through going through all this together yeah i mean i don't i don't know if i can speak for a lot of other people but at at one point in my life i think i was in high school or maybe college and i just pulled up a word document and i started typing and just started trying to write something about my life but like you said you don't have a lot of life experiences when you're young um but i think it's something that a lot of people especially people like to read you know they like to they like to think that they can try to write but i mean it's hard and it's it's a lot of it's a lot of words and a lot of ideas. And I was going to ask you, like, how do you? And I love that you write about fictional characters. I, I really enjoy. Um, I'm a like myself personally. I like to read books about things I'm interested in, and a lot of times those are like how-to type books because I like to learn how to do something. But 
it's fun to let in the mind escape and do some fictional stuff. And it's really cool to read your stuff about, you know, not only just fly fishing, which obviously I have a huge passion for, but also the Rangeley region. So it's really, uh, it's really fun. I don't think I could ever write a book like you've written though. It's very, it's very creative. It takes a, takes a big talent to be able to do that. So, you know, Steve, Stephen King, uh, wrote a book on writing and, um, one of the things he said, and I, I really believe this, you know, I hear from people all the time, um, uh, you know, how, how did you write, how did you write a book? Uh, oh, I, you know, I've got this great idea, but uh, uh, every time I try to write it, I, I don't get anywhere. And uh, what he said was, you know, the, the, the brain uh, is a muscle. You know, it's no different than, than, you know, the muscle in your arm or in your legs, and you've got to exercise it. And... Um, and I've done this um, really, I've been doing it now for whatever, 20 years. Um, you come up with a routine, whatever that routine may be. Now, my routine is, again, I think I had mentioned this, um, um, uh, Friday, Saturday, Sundays, and Mondays, uh, I wake up, make myself a cup of tea, uh, and I immediately sit down at the laptop, uh, and I write. And if nothing comes, I'll write a letter, uh, or I'll work on... Uh, an essay, or uh, maybe I'm writing uh, uh, an essay for Midcurrent, or I'm writing a, a, an article, uh, you know, for a, for a magazine, uh, or my uh, my column in, in Northwoods uh, Sportsman. Um, so I'm always exercising that muscle at the same time on the same day, so that your brain starts to actually, you know, it, it's a reflex. It it knows. All right, it's time. It's time to write. Yeah. You know? and, yeah. and it gets used to that. Um, and so when I'm writing a novel, that, that'll be the first thing. I mean, I'll go back to that novel, uh, with my, with my first mug of tea, you know, in the morning. And if I, if I hit a block or I can't come up with something, I may go back to the first page of the novel and proofread it. Uh, if that's not working, as I said, then maybe I'll write a letter to you and say, Hey, you know, when are we going to do that podcast? Sure. Uh, or, or I'll, I'll work on an essay. I usually have two or three different projects going on at the same time. And so if, if I'm doing that every day, day in and day out at the same time for the same amount of hours, uh, like the brain is, again, it, it's just a muscle. It kind of knows and, and, and it works. Um, so, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be in the morning. You know, some, some folks might do it at five o'clock in the morning and they may do it in the evening or, or, or whatever. But I think if you have that type of regimen, um, you know, some people may want to write longhand. Some people may want to use the laptop. But if you if you use that that same uh, uh, way of doing things day in and day out, after a while, it becomes it becomes second nature, and, and it's it's worked for me. Yeah, I've always wondered that with writers. Like, is it do you go and write stuff down when you know inspiration strikes? You just think of something. You're like, oh, I got to write this down. Or um, you mentioned maybe doing some columns and stuff. Do you ever find like there's pressure with that? Like, oh, I got to get something, some good, some good yeah, by the state. I, actually, I hate that. Um, <laughs> um, I, you know, I didn't know how people did that because um, early on, you know, I was asked to write columns, and I, and I would say no because I didn't want to be forced to have to. Or, or, or a magazine would contact me and say, "We need you to do an article on this," and I'd say, "Yeah, I don't want to write about that. I, I have no interest in that. I don't even know what I would say about that." Right. I, again, um, um, the, the Northwood Sporting Journal had, had asked me to, to do that monthly column. I did take it on, and now I find, like anything else, again, that my mind as a muscle 
it knows it's got to write that column each month. And somehow I seem to come up with something. So, it, uh, But that's the only one that I do on a monthly basis. Uh, that's mid current, cool. Um, Mid-current, I'll, I'll just submit it, you know, an essay when I have one. Every now and then they may shoot me an email and say, hey, you got anything we haven't heard from you? Um, and then I, I also write for um, Maine, uh, Maine Boats, Homes, and Harbors magazine. That, that's a cool, that's a pretty slick-looking uh, coffee table magazine comes out I think six six uh, times a year and I do the I do the spring edition I usually do one one story for them uh, each year so there's not, that's not too much pressure that's very that's very interesting I've always I've always kind of thought about that and I know some friends who have kind of written like an article and they submit it to a magazine or like you know like the main sportsman or like Northwood Sporting Journal and then um and I'm like, oh, you're gonna write a column, and they're like, no, because <laughs> that was my one, my one big idea or whatever. So it's, I'm sure there's a lot of pressure with that. I, I, I feel like that would be would be hard. So, um, do you feel like you come up with a lot of new stories when you're out, like on the water? Yeah, yeah. I mean, most of my stories are are rooted somewhere in reality. Um, um, uh, I mean, I'll give you an example in in, in the new book. Uh, uh, River Flowers, which is a collection of stories, right? So um, there's a story in there about a sport who's at a, at, at a, at a sporting lodge, at, at a um, um, fishing lodge, and um, um, he's complaining to the owner uh, that um, uh, he's, not having, he's not having any luck. And uh, so the owner comes back, and he's got a, he's got a hornberg. And, and, he, and he, you know, shows him the Hornberg and he says, look, you know, this is a go-to fly and, and you know, this is what you want to use. And so the, the kid, is, this is his last night at camp. He's in there with his girlfriend and it's raining cats and dogs. And, and the kid says, I'm, I'm not going to go out in this. And, and his girlfriend says, oh, but my father says fishing in the rain is, is the best time to be fishing. And he says, well, not like this, but she convinces him to go out. And he's 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 dappling the, the the wind is blowing so hard that he can't keep the hornbird on the surface, so it keeps it keeps flying up in the air. Well, the biggest trout that, that he's ever seen comes you know flying out of the out of the water, grabs the hornbird out of the air, and he's fighting it, and he realizes he doesn't have a net. And his girlfriend says to him. Um, Hey, you know, should I run back to the car and get a net? He says, well, by the time you, you get back with the net, it'll all be over one way or the other. And sure enough, just as he gets the, the, the fish to the, uh, in his hands, uh, uh, the fish turns, breaks the tippet, and is gone with the hornbird. Oh. Um, now, uh, I'm not going to give the ending of the story, all right? So someone, you're going to have to, you have to read it. <laughs> Sure. That's a true story. Uh, that that happened to me and my wife. Uh, I, I was a neophyte. In fact, I remember Tom Rideout, who owned, at the time owned Bozbuck Camps. He took a look at the knot from my from my leader to my fly line and, and just shook his head and said, "You know, oh my God, you know, <laughs> what, are, what are you doing?" And he gave me that hornberg, uh, and I lost that fish just like that. So so from that, I created this this story. Um, uh, what the heck, I'll, I'll tell you the ending. So the ending of the story is the kid comes back and says to the to the shop owner, um, you know, uh, I, I need a dozen of those flies that you gave me. You have no idea the size of the fish and blah, blah, blah. And the lodge owner says, 
what, what fly? What are you talking about? You know, and, and the kid says, that fly that you gave me the other day. He says, I give flies to everybody. I give them all different flies. I don't know what fly you're talking about. <laughs> and, of course, this is a kid. He, he's new, right? He doesn't know what a Hornberg is, and he's trying to think of the name. He can't remember the name. And as in his, his excitement, he says, that Jewish fly, you know, the Goldberg. <laughs> So the, so the, the you know the, the story ends with the lodge owner saying Mazel Tov. Nice. Uh, and the name of the story is the Goldberg. Very cool. Very cool. So again, that all came about out, out of a real life uh, experience. Yeah. What um, what percent of your stories are actually like pretty much real? You just kind of uh, well, you know fictionalize them a little off, bit. They start off with a little bit of reality. Yeah. Uh, and then sometimes they'll, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll go off. I mean, none of the characters are real. I mean, they're, they're all just, you know, figments of my imagination. Uh, a, a lot of the stories also, um, strangely, um, are influenced by, by music. So, um, you know, I live in New Jersey, so of course I have to like Bruce Springsteen, right? Yep. And, the king. and, and, and Springsteen's got a song called Jungle Land. And in, in that song, uh, you have all these kids coming from different gangs and kind of all showing up in one spot um, um, to, to, to uh, you know, they've got their guitars and, and, and whatnot. And as I'm, as I'm hearing this song over and over again, I, I got this idea for a story uh, where uh, people all over the globe uh, suddenly, all at the same time, um, just get this idea that they, they have to make a pilgrimage to this place in Maine. Uh, they don't know why. Uh, they just know that at that moment, something is telling them to do it, and, and they, can't, they can't fight the impulse. And so, at some point, there's this group of maybe seven or eight characters, uh, one, one woman from Italy, Another woman uh, from uh, from another guy from Alabama, a guy from Pennsylvania, from all, all different places. They all show up at this fellow's cabin, and he doesn't even know why they're there. And um, um, again, from there, the story takes off. Well, that was based on Jungle Land. Um, you, you wouldn't you wouldn't know it, but but you no. know, that was my inspiration, you know, for the for the story. Um, so you, you never know where a story is going to come from. It could be from music, it could be from something I read, or it could be from a, from a real-life uh, experience. Yeah, and thank you, by the way, of sending over that, that copy of River Flowers. And um, I was going to ask you, this is kind of a random question, but do you, do you know the statistics of how many of your books are sold like digitally versus like a hard copy of them, or is that you're not uh, really I, sure? I, I can answer that question uh, for sure. Um, absolutely zero are sold digitally. Uh, oh, you don't run like a Kindle or anything like that. Is none of that no, stuff? No, it's, yeah, it's all, all. Don't forget, I don't know. I don't own a cell phone. Uh, <laughs> so, so I, I need you to help me out here, Aaron. Come on, I, I, I would like to sell it digitally. You know. Well, my my point for you, my point was though that I've been reading your story, your, your stories from from River Flowers, and I've. I've just realized, because I really haven't read a lot digitally, like I'm not a big Kindle guy or anything like that, yeah. and I don't like reading on my computer, and I've just realized, I'm like, wow, I really like having a physical book in my hands, yeah. and being able to turn the pages, and it's just like, it's it reads better in, in that way or whatever, so. Well, when, my, when we get a new book, my wife and daughter, now this is going to sound strange, but they, they'll smell the pages. There you go. 
not only you know not only is it tactile, but they want to actually smell the pages of that of that new book that that we buy. I I, I don't go that far, but uh, yeah, yeah, they're they're all you're gonna get you're gonna get the hard copy. Well, never never get rid of that. I think it's I think it's a, a lost thing with some people, and I just uh, I just feel like I get more. I don't know. I get more into a story if I can read it like physically out of a book. I don't know why, but it's it's just kind of a a thing that I prefer. So, and it doesn't sound like you want to change that. So good for you. I like that a lot. Um, do you do you have any upcoming? Uh, I know this, you just released this book, River Flowers, like two weeks ago, right? That's correct. Yep. Do you have any uh, like upcoming stuff that you're working on, or is it you're just kind of waiting? Like, how long do you wait between books? Yeah. Um... I mean, there's no set period of time. You know, if I've got an idea for a book, I'm gonna I'm gonna start. I mean, Shadows in the Stream was written. Uh, I mean, that was actually written in two months, believe it or not. I mean, wow. that just that just was came out, and that came out within uh, that first book I wrote. I, I don't even think it was published, and I had I was done with with, with Shadows. But usually, it takes a couple of years. Uh, Shadows Shadows was a, was an apparition. But um, no, I'm, right now, you know, I'm, I'm working on um, the promotion, you know, for this book. Um, and um, as a result of that, basically just, just doing essays for these different magazines uh, and, and because it helps, it helps promote the book. Um, Very so cool. I'm, I'm still kind of on a high from these stories that, that, I, that, that I wrote for, for this, uh, for, the new, for the new book. Sure. And, it, and I got to tell you, it's been, it's been great reading the story so far and stuff. And I had... Had a couple of questions for you. I don't want to spoil River Flowers for anybody, but uh, there's a story about you were fishing a small stream and you didn't think anybody else was out there and you ended up running into a, a woman or a girl. Um, obvi- obviously not your wife, correct? <laughs> In real life? Um, well, first of all, that wasn't me. Okay. All right. Okay. So that, that was, that could, could have been you. you know? Could have been, right, right. Uh, and so you're talking about the, the, the story that's in two parts? Yes. Right? Yeah. So um, that, that is just totally, uh, although the stream is, is for real. Yes. Um, and, and you may know where it is, uh, although it's not mentioned, you know, in, in, in the story. Itself. I think I do, but I won't um, mention it. Uh, but the story is just, again, uh, just just uh, my imagination. Uh, I, I don't know who that fellow was. But, but I wanted to write a story... Um, you know, because the, there are, it is in two parts, as you're aware. I wanted to write it from the two different perspectives, from the perspective of the guy and the perspective of the girl. It's very cool. Uh, and, and, and then to see if I could do that. Um, and, that and that's really what that was about. It was an exercise uh, in doing that. But, um, no, it actually was not. I did not meet my wife on a transcript. <laughs> All right, I, I had to ask. was actually a juror. In, 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 a, in a case, uh, and, and that's how I met her. I met her in, in, the, in, the, um, 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 in my practice as, as an attorney in the courthouse. She had jury duty? She, she had jury duty. My, my, friends, my, uh, my friends who are attorneys, when they call, instead of asking me, you know, how's your wife, or, or they're asking me, how, how is Trish, they'll, they'll ask me, how is juror number two? <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. That's very cool. Well, I I had to ask you because reading the story, I was thinking to myself, "Wow, did he really meet his wife on this stream that I'm thinking it is?" And <laughs> pretty cool, pretty cool. That uh, yeah, in that region that you're in, I mean, it's just it's just so cool. And a lot of people focus on the big waters, but there's some really cool stuff if you get off the beaten path a little bit too. So, 
Yeah, that was a real theme uh, in, in this in this new book uh, was um, uh, you know fishing small water uh, and getting kind of getting away from it, getting away from other anglers, getting away from the big rivers, uh, and kind of um, uh, you know the enjoyment of, of uh, and not not just the fishing part of it, but all the other things that go along with fishing small water, where you know you may not see another fisherman for days, and you can do that. Uh, you can do that in Western Maine. You can. You There's can. so many small small streams and ponds that uh, um, that is really you know uh, part of the the enjoyment uh, of of the region. And as I get older, um, you know, it gets tougher fishing the big water. Um, uh, and so I find myself gravitating toward toward that uh, uh, those smaller streams. And again, that, I think that was a kind of a subcurrent uh, through the book. And and. Um, Mentioning, you you you're talking about, you know, real life versus imagination. So there's a story in there called Warden's Worry. Yes, I read that one. All right, so um, we 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 know uh, a family whose name will certainly not go mentioned, uh, who uh, basically um, you know keeps the wardens on their toes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so that story was really dedicated. To that, to that family. That's uh, very cool. Uh, you know, everybody in our region knows this family. I'm sure there's more than one. Everybody knows, knows has their own family, but there is a particular family in that area that thinks nothing of, of you know, uh, breaking the law. And so I, uh, that's where that story came about. Um, there's, a, there's another story um, um, called Lost Pond. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, 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 um, th- th- that story was really based upon, uh, there are two brothers, um, and one of the brothers actually owned my camp and, and, and we purchased it, uh, from him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, th- these two, two brothers, um, and, and, um, um, one of the brothers was married, uh, so it was, it was them two and, and then his wife, his wife became a fly tire. And um, in my time, um, she could have been basically the Carrie Stevens of the you know nineteen nineteen seventies and eighties, uh, um, and, and and you know the Rangeley Region Sports Shop uh, was was selling her flies, and um, so the, the, this trio of folks was pretty well known in the area, uh, and they had at this particular place where they fished, and. Um, when I got up there, uh, um, as a pretty young man, uh, you know, they were already in their seventies. And I remember, you know, coming into the spot, uh, and one of these fellas kind of shows up and says, you know, what are you doing here? And I said, well, you know, I, I don't know. I found this trail. I walked down and I'm fishing it. He says, you know, my brother and I cut this trail. We, we cut. I, oh, well, that, that's nice that you cut the trail. And I said, "This is public water," and he says, "Well, yeah, but you know, we did cut this trail." <laughs> and, and so, so he was known as kind of an ornery son of a gun. And you know, as years went on, um, um, I ended up writing a story—not uh, a story. I ended up writing an article on on his wife the, who, who tied the flies. And I and I had at that point I had called and I spoke to to, to the daughter. And he said, yeah, you know, my, my dad is getting on in years and, and, and you know, my mom uh, is, is uh, in a nursing home. And I said, well, I, I want to show you this, this article and I want to make sure it's okay with you. 
uh, because I want to really honor your mother, and not too many people, you know, know about her. Everybody writes about Carrie Stevens. I thought it would be nice to write about her, and they they approved the article. And the article went in, and then I wrote this story, uh, the the one that the one that's in River and Flowers, mm-hmm. and of course the character in there is an ornery son of a gun. And I said, uh, I want you to look at the story before I write it. I said, but you know, I I, I really got a kick out of your father, and they and, and he said, no, no problem. That was my father, all right. So that's where that story came from. That's very cool. That. To me, that just sounds like a typical Mainer, really. At the end yeah, of the day, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's so funny. Um, yeah, and you know, like like you were talking about the big rivers, how packed they've been, especially the last few years. It's like I know so many people that are looking for that huge trout or that huge salmon, and they get it, and then I'm like, all right, well, now what? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I feel like people are yeah. chasing big fish, and it's like, well, now you may as well go to the ocean because you're not you're not getting anything bigger than what you got and in freshwater and um, having two little daughters for me, it was, it's been cool reading your book because you talk a lot about small streams and I've actually gotten back to more, you know, two weight and three weight small stream fishing with them because it's very, it's very easy. You know, you just throw an Elkhart caddis out there or something and you'll get some action. And, uh, they've, both of my girls caught their first fish on fly rods and they were native brook trout up there. So that was, that was really cool. So that really, that really sat with me. And, uh, it's nice to to think about those things, and also you talk about pond fishing a little bit too. It's like you know Maine's not known for great river fishing, like you know you have out west. Maine, yeah. I mean Maine has great pond fishing. Like like our ponds are like Montana's rivers. Like we have so many ponds that are just chock full of native brook trout, and they can be big, they can be little, you know. And that's that's an often underlooked thing because I think like you said, you know, you got to work a little bit to get to those places too. So yeah. That's right. People cutting trails and stuff like that, and it's uh, it's very cool. You're you're really where you are, especially you're surrounded by so much right there. It's awesome. So, well, you talk about your daughters. Um, you know what I tried to do in River Flowers uh, with those stories. Um, um, I, I you know one of the threads that runs through these stories is the relationship of uh, one generation to another. Um, and so there are quite a few stories there about uh, maybe a grandparent with a, with a grandchild or a, or a father with a son or, or, or whatever. Um, um, there, I know that uh, there's the one story um, um, about the, uh, the girl, the little girl whose father uh, runs a lodge. Her mother and father run a lodge. And... Um, it has to do with fall fish, uh, and, and, and again, um, uh, you know, it, it really bugs me. Uh, I, I understand that a fall fish, you know, um, is probably, you know, just about as low on the totem pole with people as river spiders and lawyers, right? Did, did, your, uh, did your daughter draw the fall fish that's in the book there? Yes, she did. Very cool. I saw that. Yeah, I saw yeah, that yesterday. Yeah, I was looking did, at she it. She did all the artwork in the book, yeah. It's very cool. Um, but... Um, so, you know, one day I'm, I'm on the upper McGalloway and there's a fella there uh, and he's just chucking these fall fish, you know, uh, over his shoulder, you know, on, onto the bank. Uh, and I, I get that. And the fall fish are huge. I mean, these are two and three. They're big. Fall fish. They're big. So I get that you get upset because you think you've got a trophy trout. It turns out to be a fall fish. And I could see, you know, throwing them back in, in, in the uh, in the river. But, you know, when you throw a fall fish on the bank, that fish is going to suffocate. Yep. Uh, and it's going to die a slow, miserable death. 
and and you know it's not his fault that it's in the river uh and so so that's just something that has always bothered me yeah uh and and there's more than once where i've gone up to an angler and said you know, give me a break. You know, just throw it back in the river. Uh, well, they're part of the you know, ecosystem, though. They're part of what make the trout big. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like that's all. It's all there for a reason. And you're very right that people shouldn't just discard them. I mean, they even talk about. You just made a really good point about like you know, there's bass in the Rapid River. Well, they don't like. It's not their fault they're there. You know what I mean? So I I get that people want to kill them and stuff, but I mean. You going out and killing two bass every time you go isn't going to even put a dent in that population. No, no. You know? And if you if you really need to kill the fish, kill the freaking fish. Right. Kill it. Right. You know, don't let it suffocate on the bank. Uh, yeah. You know, I can live with that if that's if you really feel you need to do that. Yeah. Uh, but I I actually uh, I got into trouble with a warden. Uh, I don't know if you just saw one of my cats just. Came oh, here. I see it right there. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, I was on the rapid, and sure enough, I caught a bass, and um, I put him back. Uh, and, and I didn't know, the, you know, the warden was literally standing behind me, and I didn't know it. And he, got, he really got upset, and he said, you know, we're trying to get rid of the bass. And I said, look, this one bass is not going to be the end of the brook trout fishing. Yeah. It's not going to have any impact at all. Right. And unless you can figure out a way of getting rid of all the bass, you know, I just, I'm not going to be the one, you know, to... to, to to kill the fish so I, I don't know whether that's right or wrong but um you know they're part of the ecosystem now though and you know yeah. like people talk about the brook trout not being in great numbers there but i mean they seem to be holding on okay and they seem like yeah. trout are really resilient i mean you look at i know it's not rangely but you look at moosehead and they had they had problems with numbers for a long time and yeah, those brook, those brook trout are coming back, but they've also they've learned how to spawn in the lake instead of in rivers, mm-hmm. because when you spawn in rivers, like there's a higher there's a higher you know rate of them potentially dying. You know they're in, yeah. they're in shallow water, right? And they they can they can uh, be taken by birds, or they just have a hard journey. But they're really thriving doing that. So I feel like you know same thing like on the rapid, like those brook trout, there's still good sized brook trout in there in good numbers. Yeah. And you know they're they're evolving. You know they're just finding their way among the bass. But I think I think the only way you get rid of bass out of there, to be honest with you, is like in the summertime. If you brought like if you brought like a few rafts full of biologists into the pond in the river, and you like electroshock the whole thing. Yeah. And then you just removed as much bass as you could, and you like did that continuously for a few years in the summer. That might put a good dent in it, but I mean. I don't see I don't see our state putting their money and resources in the, into doing that, but I mean it's it it, it is I, what I, it I is. Out, out west, um, I think I, I, I I've read this. I mean, where they, they will they will poison a pond or a lake and literally you know um, kill everything. Yeah, using uh, uh, rodent and, and, rodent and, 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 or whatever and it's called. You know, with with with, the, with whatever the native fish you know would have originally been. Um, I, look, it, it's a controversial issue. I think there are people on both sides. Uh, you know, I, I think you reach a certain age where, honestly, life is just. Uh, you you recognize how precious life is, mm-hmm. and I, I know this is going to sound kind of maudlin, but you know. Uh, you know whether it's a, a mosquito, uh, a bass, a trout. Um, um, I don't know. You know whatever. Uh, I, I just don't don't 
need to be the agent of that that entity's death. Uh, um, it's going to come all too soon for me, um, and uh, you know, I, I just feel, um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not going to be the one that, that's going to bring that 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 entity's uh, uh, life to an end. So for sure, and, and back back to your original PSA, people don't kill fallfish, please, because they're they're a big part of the right. ecosystem for trout. So yeah. Um, well, that's great, Bob. Um, do you want to, do you want to talk any more about, it sounds like you've mentioned every book, which is great and, and kind of talked about what they're about. Um, do you want to, at this point, maybe let people know where they can find your books? Sure. Uh, you know, obviously you can go to Amazon, uh, uh both the river King and, uh, river flowers, uh, can be had at, at Amazon. Um, the other, the other books, which are, uh, which are tough to find, uh, my website uh, is ForgottenTrout.com. Okay. So if you go to ForgottenTrout.com, uh, you can see reviews, you can see excerpts. And if you want one of those out-of-print books, uh, you can email me. Uh, and uh, if I come across one, as I do from time to time, then I can, I can get it over you know, to a reader. Uh, what we were talking about uh, you know, before uh, we started uh, tonight um, what I'd like to do uh, for people listening to the podcast is this. Uh, for either uh, The River King or for River Flowers, the new book, um, if you want to order an autograph copy, um, you can email me at mcgalloway.com. So that's M-A-G-A-L-L-O-W-A-Y, like the river. Magalloway uh, at mac.com. At mac.com, okay. At, yeah, I'm sorry, at mac.com. And what we'll do is um, um, the, the normal price uh, is uh, $23 for the River King and $25 for River Flowers. So we'll take a couple of bucks off that. So, so a River King uh, would be uh, $20 and River Flowers would be $23. And we'll also give you free shipping. So you can shoot me an email. And if you say you heard about it on this podcast... Uh, then, then, you know, we'll give you a break on the price and we'll give you free shipping. That's really great, Bob. And I'll throw that on our, uh, I'll throw that on our Instagram there when I'm kind of promoting great. our, our episode yeah, here. Be good. That's great. That I'll, uh, I wrote, I just typed that information down, so I'll have that. So, um, is there any people can, can see you like in person? Are you, are you going to be attending any shows this year? Or I know COVID's kind of crazy, but. Yeah. Yeah. Um, again, depending upon rest- restrictions and protocols, uh, I'll be at the uh, Marlboro show in Massachusetts, the fly fishing show. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, um, I think that's the third weekend in January. Yeah, that's usually when it is. Yeah, if, if you Google the fly fishing show, uh, you know, you'll see it. And then I'm going to be in Edison, the fly fishing show in Edison, New Jersey. That's the following weekend. Uh, I'm going to be in Pennsylvania at the Lancaster Fly Fishing Show. Each one of those are, are uh, three days. And I'm, I'm at the bookstore booth. So, so at that booth, I'm there all day. And then I give a program on the Rangeley Lakes region with 100 photographs. Very cool. Uh, and, and it's a one-hour program. And I do get into uh, you know what flies to use, what's a good time to go, what lodges you can stay at. Um, and, and, that, and that's another thing. If you go to that website, ForgottenTrout.com, there's a lot of information uh, on the Rangy Lakes region. Uh, there are a couple of videos uh, there. Uh, there's a bunch of photos. Um, and I have information, again, on the lodges and, and things like that. And then you can also email me. If somebody want, is scheduling a trip, 
you're not sure where you want to stay or you don't know what time of year to go or you, you want to talk about what flies to bring, you can just shoot me an email. And uh, I get those emails all the time, and I'm, I'm happy to you know, chat with you uh, and, and get, that, um, uh, get that trip set up. Very cool, Bob. Well, thank you. And I again, I'll I'll put all this information out on our social media and and uh, push that for you. And congratulations on your on your new book. I mean, like I said, I've tried to write just a couple of pages before, and even that to me was an astronomical task. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to start doing it. You know, you got to you got to get that routine going, Eric. Oh my gosh, I don't even I won't even know where to start. Maybe got to start like your daughter, start in the middle of the book. She seems like she just likes the. She starts with like the climax, like the most interesting part, right? And then That's right. works yep. backwards. So, well, very cool, Bob. Well, thank you for uh, thank you for coming on, and uh, I I wish you the best of your luck with new bo- with your new book, and um, hopefully we can uh, maybe we can connect up there sometime this year and get on well, the water that, together. We're gonna have to do that, Eric. Yeah, we we should get together on the water. I want to thank you very much for giving me the opportunity uh, to speak to the you know your folks who who uh, uh, hear, hear the podcast. Uh, that was awfully nice of you. Very cool. Thank you, Bob. We, we appreciate having you on. And uh, hang out for a second here, all right? And I'll, I'll talk to you after. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Maine Fly Fishing Podcast. Please go back and listen to some of our previous episodes and help support some of the folks that are doing some really cool things here in the fly fishing industry in Maine.